This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to my archive of half-read books. Uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to you about brain differences between humans and apes. This is a daunting task given how much our knowledge of this subject has grown recently, so I can't treat the subject comprehensively. What I'll do instead is focus on the association cortex, the classic regions, prefrontal, posterior, parietal, temporal cortex, and their connections with each other, because these seem particularly pertinent to possible human cognitive and behavioral specializations, as well as to neurocognitive disorders. I'm also going to talk about the intersections between brain studies and genomic research, as this is a wave of the future. What's driving this new knowledge? To a large extent, the development and maturation of comparative neuroimaging, and comparative genomics. One thing we've known for a long time is that human brains are bizarrely large, more than three times the size of those of African apes of similar body size, such as male chimpanzees or female gorillas. This enlargement uh, accelerated about two and a half million years ago with the appearance of the genus Homo. What accounts for this increase in brain size? Mainly the expansion of association cortex. There are lots of old graphs and tables supporting this claim, but a picture is worth a thousand words and MRI excels at nothing so much as generating pictures. With MRI, you can map the density of intracortical myelin across the cortical gray matter, and this turns out to be very revealing. It's important to bear in mind that myelin isn't only found in white matter, of course. There's a lot in the white matter where it covers axons, but the gray matter of the primary sensory and motor areas like primary visual cortex, primary motor and sensory, somatosensory cortex, primary auditory cortex, and their neighboring secondary areas also have a lot of well-myelinated fibers. In these maps, those regions code as red or green, while association cortex tends to be very poorly myelinated and codes blue. And the human picture is strongly dominated by blue. Now you can get a more detailed picture using MRI morphometrics, which involves determining where and by how much you have to stretch virtually chimpanzee cortex to make it match certain landmarks in human cortex. When you do this, it's apparent that large segments of prefrontal, temporal, and posterior parietal cortex 
are three to four times larger in humans than in chimpanzees, whereas most of the primary and secondary areas enlarge much less. Interestingly, the primary auditory cortex of humans stands out as an exception. So what happened to the organization of association cortex as it enlarged? Well, one mode of change was repurposing. Evolution modified some existing areas to, su to support new functions, including language. So for example, we have good evidence that homologs of the classic language areas of Broca and Wernicke exist in apes and in other non-human primates, species that don't have language. For Broca's area, the evidence consists of commonalities in the location of the area with respect to other areas, aspects of connectivity, and non-linguistic motor functions, such as control of forelimb and orofacial movements. The homologous areas in humans, of course, also support language. But wait, there's more. This region is also involved in the organization of complex, hierarchically organized actions, and perhaps it's biased towards the right hemisphere in this regard. So the region is activated during tool making, including the fashioning of Paleolithic tools with the more complex Acheulean tools like hand axes, yielding more activation than uh, making of the earlier, simpler Aldovan tools. Surprisingly, perhaps, it's also involved in social cognition, including such high-level functions as reasoning about mental states, an aspect of theory of mind. In fact, it's part of the social brain network. So how did evolution modify Broca's area to support human-specific functions? One possibility is that its connections with other regions were altered. We can investigate this using diffusion neuroimaging, a set of techniques that allow us to trace fiber pathways through the white matter between, other, between areas. It's based on the propensity of water molecules to diffuse along rather than across fiber tracks because the myelin sheaths that surround fibers are fatty and thus hydrophobic. And we can use diffusion imaging to reconstruct the several homologous major fiber bundles that connect distant areas in humans and also in apes and in fact in other non-human primates. Now, long before the development of neuroimaging, we knew from gross dissections that Broca's area in the frontal lobe was connected with Wernicke's area in the temporal lobe by a fiber bundle called the arcuate fasciculus. And one might expect that the evolution of language, that with the evolution of language, there would be some differences in the areas interconnected by the arcuate in humans and apes. 
And comparative diffusion imaging studies indicate that indeed there are. In humans, the arcuate fasciculus has much stronger connections with the middle temporal gyrus uh, than in chimpanzees or in macaques, for that matter. That's interesting because the middle temporal gyrus is known to harbor semantic representations, including representations of word meanings. Now that we know what parts of human cortex expanded in human evolution, we can take advantage of our newfound knowledge of evolutionary changes in gene structure and gene expression to see how the two are related. You may have heard of these so-called human-accelerated regions of the genome. These are DNA segments that, by, by definition, underwent the most extreme or numerous changes in sequence in the human lineage. Now, most of these aren't genes in the conventional sense uh, because typically they don't code for proteins but rather are DNA segments that regulate the expression of nearby genes. In the brain, human accelerated regions regulate the expression of numerous genes, at least some of which are involved in synaptic formation and dendritic development. Not surprisingly, perhaps, mutations of these so-called HAR-associated genes disrupt cognition and social behavior. Where are the HAR-associated genes expressed in the cortex? Well, pretty much everywhere, but they're expressed most strongly in the higher-order association regions in humans. Now, although Humans and chimps both show greater expression of homologous HAR-associated genes in higher-order association cortex. In the higher-order regions that are available for comparison in the PsycEncode uh, database, humans show a more than two-fold expression enhancement compared to chimpanzees or macaques. Now, we don't know what structural and functional consequences these expression differences have, but given the involvement of HAR-associated genes in regulating synaptic and dendritic formation, it seems likely they play a role in crafting the internal information processing architecture of cortical association areas. I want to turn now to brain plasticity. This is, of course, a well-known feature of gray matter. Less well-known is white matter plasticity. That is, experience-driven changes in the physical properties of white matter fibers that affect the strength and velocity of the signals they carry. These changes occur throughout the lifespan, and really this should come as no surprise since the neurons in the gray matter have to continually evaluate and weigh information from their various inputs 
which arrive through the white matter. And the weighting should vary with experience. There are now several landmark studies of white matter plasticity, but to take an example, learning to make alternating left and right hand movements requires communication, communication between the two hemispheres, which results in changes in the fiber track that connects them, namely the corpus callosum. How do you modify signal strength in the white matter? In part, at least, by modifying the amount of myelin that surrounds axons. This is orchestrated by a symphony of molecular signals passing between neurons and the cells that make myelin sheaths, namely oligodendrocytes. In this way, neuronal signals can remodel myelin sheaths and thus change the weighting of their signals. Given this dimension of plasticity, along with the range of skills, cognitive, motor, and otherwise that humans acquire and continue to modify over the course of a lifetime, it's pertinent to ask whether humans differ from apes in the genetics of oligodendrocytes. And they do. Many more oligocyte genes underwent expression changes in humans than in chimpanzees since their lineages separated. Interestingly, in humans, there's a set of co-expressed oligodendrocyte genes that have allelic variants associated with schizophrenia and other neurocognitive disorders. The normal functional consequences of these oligodendrocyte gene expression changes remain to be explored, but there's reason to think that some of them, at least, relate to the plasticity of cortical systems. And notably, human brains are more variable uh, individually in their morphology than our chimpanzee brains. One line of evidence suggesting that our brains are more plastic. So the material I've covered today suggests a number of follow-up questions. For example, what about the genetic control of the non-uniform expansion of association areas? We can ask about the genetic control of changes in cortical connectivity and physiology. We can ask about genetic control of plasticity and also about the disease consequences of human neural and genetic specializations. These are pretty deep questions about human nature. Fortunately, we now have tools uh, to address these questions and many like them. So researchers can access neuroimaging data online, including data uh, about chimpanzees. You can inquire about gene sequence and gene expression changes, again, online. And if these don't meet your needs, you can request suitable brain tissue from a variety of sources and do your own work. So I want to emphasize the unique value of the information about chimpanzees represented here for understanding human brain evolution and human disease. 
because much of this came from investigations done at Yerkes in the past, and there's no new chimpanzee research being carried out there. So this is our treasure trove for understanding human brain specializations. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.